Good morning, everyone. I would ask if you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. When I was last with you back in early December, I made the observation that we're going to be uh, studying uh, this, these next four weeks, today and the following three weeks, uh, an examination of the greatest commandment. And we, we kind of set the stage the last time we were together looking at the, the idea that uh, we cannot love without first being loved. That first John says, uh, we love him because he first loved us. You know, so often religion uh, sets it up like this, that he loves us because we first love him. And the idea that religion says that in order to gain God's favor, in order to win God's approval, there has to be on our behalf some effort put forth to somehow uh, capture God's affection, that we might become worthy of it. But we sang this morning, uh, we can't earn it, and we don't deserve it. And truly, uh, we love not just him, but love in general, John says in his epistle, because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. In the first meeting this morning, uh, there was meditation on the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. And it is a powerful story of God's love and forgiveness. It's a, a powerful image of what it means to be loved by God. And of course, many of you are familiar with the story. You know that in the story there was a young man who was the younger brother who demanded from his father his portion of the inheritance. And Jesus tells the story that the young man got what he wanted, left his father's house, and spent everything he had in a wasteful lifestyle, just squandering all of his father's inheritance to the point where he found himself bankrupt, broke, and now starving because of a great famine that had descended upon the land. And Jesus goes on to tell him the story that this man feeding pigs was so hungry he longed to eat what the pigs were eating and the bible tells us that jesus said to his audience and the man came to his senses and realized that his father's servants had more than enough to eat and he had this conversation with himself where he said i will arise and go back to my father i will confess to him that i am no longer worthy to be his son and I will ask only that he receive me as one of his slaves. The man understood that he had forfeited any right to be a child, to be a son, to belong in that family. The only thing he could appeal to was the mercy of his father to take him back as a slave. Now, as I was thinking about that this morning in the first meeting, I thought about all the different ways that story might have ended. I thought about how I, as a parent, might have responded to a son who had broken my heart, who had basically said to me, I don't care whether you live or die, I just want what you have. I tried to imagine what it would be like to watch that son go and then not know whether he would ever come back, never hearing from him again, and wondering how I might respond should that son come back. You know, we can imagine all kinds of different scenarios how that story might end. We could imagine, for example, that unlike the father in Jesus' story, 
The father wasn't looking for this son. He had written him off. You're dead to me. And when the son returned, there's a knock on the door. And as the son awaits for his father to open the door, the father opens it and there's stony silence. We could imagine that, right? We could imagine a father standing there waiting to hear, well, what do you have to say for yourself? We can imagine an outcome in that story where the father's standing there and he's looking down at his son and his son can't even get the words out because he's so ashamed. And the father just lets him suffer a little because he knows that he, he deserves this. That he squandered my inheritance. He took my wealth and wasted it. And now he's coming back. He's got the audacity to come back home and stand before me. And what does he want from me now? We can imagine this outcome like that. That would be very human of us. And you know, there probably would have been no one in the audience that day if Jesus' story ended that, that way that would have disagreed with that outcome. We could imagine another outcome where the father is waiting expectantly and then the son comes home and the father basically says, I told you so. What do you think was going to happen when you left my provision and my care? What do you think was going to happen to you, your ignorant, naive, youthful self, going out and with more money than you could possibly know what to do with? We can imagine an outcome like that. We can imagine all kinds of possible outcomes, but the outcome that we can't imagine, the outcome that we could not imagine until Jesus said it was the outcome Jesus described. We only think about that outcome now because of Jesus. If Jesus never told that story, if there had never been a prodigal son story written 2,000 years ago, we would never imagine that outcome. But there is this father running down the road to meet his son and loving that son, not letting him finish his apology. And you see, when we, we come to this commandment that we find here in Mark's gospel, we must anchor it in the grace of God. Because what we cannot do is hear what God tells us to do in any capacity and think that our obedience will somehow gain us more favor with him. I operate that way. I read these verses, I read that Jesus responds to the question, what commandment is the foremost of all in verse 28? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I hear those commandments, and two things happen. The first one is I think to myself, what a failure am I? What a failure am I? And then the second thing is, how ashamed am I? And you see, if, if I go to this commandment and I operate from that position of failure and shame, and I think, okay, I, I just got to try harder. I just got to do better. I just got to put a little more effort into this whole thing. I am so off base. What you need to hear this morning 
is that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that's rooted not in our performance or in our efforts or in our ability to succeed or obey, but is rooted solely in the obedience and the success and the love of Jesus Christ our Savior. There has only been one person in the history of the human race who has ever loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that has been Jesus. He is the only one who's ever done this. It is truly the greatest commandment. It is truly the summation of all the law and the prophets. These two commandments encapsulate the will of God for your life and for my life. You want to know what God wants from you? It's to adore him and cherish others. That's what God wants from us. But in the very wanting of it, he created the way for it to be realized in us. Because sin entered into the world and death by sin. And death is passed upon all men. For all have sinned, the Bible tells us. And the very thing we were created to do is the very thing we can't do because of our rebellious, wicked, sinful hearts. And it is not until we receive the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes us from the inside out that we will even be able to hear what Jesus is saying here and be able to obey it. It's not that we try to obey this so that God will love us. We want to love him because he first loved us. We want to understand this love. We want to learn this love. We want to experience this love. And it motivates us. We love because he first loved us. We love him and we love others. And so as we gather together to worship, as we pour out our hearts in prayer to him, what happens? We remember how great is his love toward us. As we talk about him to one another, as we sing songs to each other about his goodness and his grace, what does it do? It's like fanning the flames of our heart, providing fuel to that love that we can give back to him. But my friend, this morning, you must not think that you can win God's favor through some resolve on your part. You must not believe that there is something you can do that could somehow bargain with God. And if you're in a place in your life of sorrow or struggle or heartache or hurt, and you're coming here and you're hoping that God might have favor upon you because you came this morning, you must disabuse yourself of that thinking. You must understand that you're here because he drew you here because he loved you before you walked in the door. He loved you before you knew his name. He loved you before you were born. And it's his love that draws you to himself. And it's only his love that will be able to make you the person that he wants you to be. And so as we are going to be examining these, the, this commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, I want us to always anchor it in the truth that the gospel is a gift. It is a gift. It is not a reward for the righteous, 
but it is a gift to the guilty. It's only as we operate out of that truth that we will ever begin to understand how it is that we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because we are to love Him. It is a commandment to love Him. It is not some suggestion that God gives. It is the way we are to operate as human beings, to love Him and to love one another. It is what we were created for. It is what our design is. It is who we are supposed to be and what we're supposed to be about. And yes, will we fall short? Absolutely. Will we ever do this perfectly, this side of eternity? No, we will not. But that does not mean that we throw in the towel, throw up our hands and say, well, what's the point? The point is that we've been loved by God. And that that love is shed abroad, as we heard this morning in the first meeting, by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. It's not that i got to come up with a source of love from myself. It's just kind of like allowing God's love to do its thing in me. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to, whatever your heart confides in, that is really your God. The Hebrew word heart was lev, and it meant um, something broader than what we think of in our culture. They thought of the heart not only as the organ that gives physical life, but also the place where you think and make sense of the world, where you feel emotions and make choices. The heart, according to uh, a preceptaustin.org, a commentary website, is the center of the personality. It controls the intellect, the emotions, and the will. The cardia is the seat and center of human life, the control center of our being. When Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what was he saying? What was he saying? Well, let's take a moment and tell we've already, and, and look at what he's not saying. The first thing we need to understand is that he's not breaking us into little pieces. He's not saying, here's your heart, here's your soul, here's your mind, here's your strength, and you, need, you got these four boxes, and you need to check the boxes in order to make sure you're loving God properly. That's not what he's saying. If we think about it, what he's doing is he's emphasizing the totality of our existence. He's emphasizing everything about us. He's emphasizing the unity of our existence. It's not a checklist that I'm supposed to be checking off, but rather he's trying to draw attention to the fact that there's no aspect of my existence that is somehow excluded from this commandment. There's a lot of different ways you can unpackage this commandment. For example, the heart is that which is often thought of as being the interior. In other words, it's the, it's the internal mechanism. It's the internal operating system of a person's life. And so there's an interior that is the focus. And then this word soul, the word soul is the word that comes from the, uh, the Greek word for breath. And it's an interesting word because the word soul implies life itself. And we're going to look at this next week a little bit more detail. 
but it's the, almost as if there's a, a bouncing back and forth here between what is interior and by nature invisible and what is exterior and by nature visible. Heart, what you cannot see. Soul or life, what you do see. The same thing with mind and strength. The mind is something interior. My thoughts, my values, my beliefs, my imaginings. You don't know what they are, but what do I put my effort into? Where do I devote my energies, my exercises? Suddenly now, you see those things. So heart interior, soul exterior, mind interior, strength exterior. There's a dynamic bouncing back and forth between what is seen and between what is not seen. Another way to look at it would be to think of the heart as it were the axle in the wheel, that center part of the wheel, and then the soul, mind, and strength being the spokes. And the heart turns all these things. As Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And so another way to look at it would be to say to our, our heart is the starting point, And from it flows all the aspects of my life, my soul, all the aspects of my thinking, my imagining, my thought life. And then it also directs all of the energies of my existence. So there's different ways for us to approach this. And so what we want to do today is sort of unpackage in the time we have together what would be included or what aspects of our heart does this mean to meditate with me together this morning on the heart as that, that operating system. And I'm going to give you, you know, you know, preachers love their acronyms. You know, they just love to give you like little acronyms and acrostics and things. So here it is. It's core. C-O-R-E. C-O-R. Our heart is our core. Okay? Makes sense. There's a logic there. C, the center. What is meant by our center? If your heart is your center, if your heart has to do with what is center central to you, Dr. Diana Robb wrote in Psychology Today that our center is the reference point or place we come back to when life's challenges and motions push you off balance. Let me repeat that. Our center is a reference point or place to come back to when life's challenges and emotions push you off balance. What is your center this morning? Another writer states that our center is what drives you to be you. Our center is what drives me to be me. So, in many ways, you could say our center is intimately connected to our identity. It's intimately connected to our motivations. It's intimately connected to our sense of self. And so, if we take that as somehow being synonymous with the heart, and when God says to us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that means that if I'm going to love God with my heart, that, that means that there's got to be something deep in the center of who I am that is connected to Jesus Christ. 
that when I think of my life, I'm going to think about it in reference to him. And that when I'm not living in reference to him, I'm not loving him with all my heart. When I love Christ and God with all my heart, it means that he is the center. He is the center. He is the place I come back to, and he is the one who drives me to be me. Now, if you think about that, right, people have all kinds of issues with identity today. There are all kinds of problems with identity. Some people are identified by their gender. They're identified by their their attractions, their affections. Some people are identifying themselves by their work. Some identify themselves by their spouse. They find their identity in their children. In other words, there are all kinds of places where we try to draw who we are from. We're always trying to figure out who we are. We're always trying to do that. And we're always modifying that based on our circumstances. And sometimes we're, we're kind of getting our identity from our careers or our jobs or our professions. Sometimes we're getting our identity by our families. And we, so we, we draw senses of significance and satisfaction and security from being a parent or being a grandparent. And there's a sense in which we're always trying to figure out who we are and what we're supposed to be about. But if we're really going to love God with all our heart, we need to recognize, we need to understand that there cannot be more than one center. There's got to be one center. And what is it for you? You see, for the Christian, God, he like takes the mystery out of it. The Apostle Paul put it this way, I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All the brokenness in my life, all of the emotional pain that I experience to one degree or another is because I'm off-center. And it's not because I'm not being true to myself. It's that I'm not being true to Christ. This morning, loving God with all my heart recognizes that He needs to be in my mind, my consciousness the center. He is, if I'm a Christian, it's not like I have to make him that. He is by default that. When I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there were amazing things that happened to me. And one of them was that the old person who was the center, broken and damaged and inadequate as he was, is replaced now with a new center. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells me. The love of God is shed abroad in my heart by His Spirit who is given to me. And I have a new center. The problem is I keep moving off it. It's not that i got to come up with it. I just got to keep going back to it. Now, for if you're, a, if you're a young Christian or a new believer, this may be like a mindset that you have to kind of click into. It's like, wow, that may explain why I'm struggling as a Christian because I keep thinking 
that I have to come up with who I am and what I'm supposed to be about. And in reality, my identity is in Christ. And I've never quite thought that through or thought this way. And now I need to kind of get to that place where he already is. Loving God with all my heart means he's my drive. He's my identity. He's my center. Oh, orientation. Orientation. You see, if you think about it, right, you think about how we look at someone and we see their life and we see the direction of their life. Where is their life going? What is the orientation of their life? Think about with me for a moment David in the Bible. King David. King David, a man after God's own heart. That's what God says about King David. But David, by most standards, is a pretty big mess up. I mean, he really blows it a lot. I mean, he blows it when he has adultery. That's his most you know, flagrant example. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and it's like a, a disaster. But he, he was a terrible father. He didn't really know how to raise his kids properly. He didn't know how to discipline them. He was a mess when it came to being a parent. And sometimes as a king, he really wasn't all together. The whole thing with the census and doing exactly what God told him not to do. I mean, you can look at his life and you could say, you know, there's a lot more failure there. I mean, if you're honest, if you look at it kind of objectively, there's a lot of failure in David's life. And yet God says, here is a man after my own heart. Why? Because David was oriented toward God. That no matter where his life went, no matter what detours, deviations, or breakdowns he had in his life, he was always moving toward God one way or another. When things are going well, I praise you, O God. You have heard my supplication. When he has blown it, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. In other words, here was his north star, his focal point, his internal guidance system. And so when we think about what is our heart, we think about where are we oriented to. Now listen, we have all kinds of things that compete for this orientation. For a lot of young adults, it's success. Whatever that might mean in your mind. In other words, there's some kind of amorphous idea that that you're kind of pursuing, and that's the goal. That's the North Star. That's the directional guidance system. And the problem is you're not exactly sure what it looks like, and you're going to keep pursuing it, whether it means lots of money, whether it means a big house, a couple of cars, nice family, whether it means a life in the suburbs. There's some, some kind of direction that's pulling you, and you're pursuing this. And what's even more tragic is sometimes you're not even sure what exactly it is. You're kind of hoping that when you find it, you'll know what it is. There's all kinds of things that compete. For some of us, it's just no problems. Now that's what we want. We kind of orient our lives to be problem-free. So we avoid conflict. We avoid risk. We avoid stress. We try to live our lives in a bubble, as it were. But see, if I'm to love God with all my heart, it means that I'm going to 
see him as that north star, that everything else has to align with him. He's not supposed to align with everything else. But everything else is supposed to align with him. Relationships are. We all understand the heart in this attitude, right? We all understand this, right? We also understand this. <laughs> right? Broken heart. You see, relationships are often the first thing we think about when we think about our heart. We think about the relationships that we have with our parents, with our siblings, with our grandparents, with our spouses, with our friends. And it's in that area of our life where we are most often associating uh, the heart. And we think of the heart in context of relationship. Listen to what David said. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now, I look at that, and I just chalk that off to David. <laughs> right? If I'm honest, there's lots of things I desire on earth. There are a lot of things I desire out of my relationships. Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me tell you, those are one of the, that's one of the hard verses in the Bible. That's one of the hard verses in the Bible. How could Jesus say, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, even your own life? Well, you need to understand something that Jesus was using poetic hyperbole. What he's saying here is, look, your love for me has to eclipse every other love in your life. So much so that by comparison, one is love, the other is hate. It's not that he's saying that we should be obnoxious to our relatives or nasty to the people in our lives. That would violate the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. It makes no sense if you're thinking that way in terms of everything else the New Testament teaches about life in the church and life in the body and life in the family and life in the home. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. In other words, Jesus is saying something, but he's not saying treat your family and relatives badly. What he's saying is, is that every relationship has to be a very, very distant subordinate to your relationship with Christ. And there may be times in your life where loving him will cost your family. It may cost your parents. It may cost your siblings. It might even cost your children or your spouse something. But it's not that you're not concerned about their well-being. It's just that his relationship is the most important relationship you have in your life. I cannot emphasize this enough. I cannot emphasize this enough. The most important relationship you have in this life is your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
there is no relationship you have here on earth that is going to be permanent this side of eternity. You have your parents. Someday they will pass away. You have your children. They will grow up. They will move away. They will become independent people. You have your spouse. And it's a rare couple that gets to go home together. There is no relationship this side of eternity that is permanent. Only Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If your spouse is your center, if your children are your direction, if your siblings or your parents are your most important relationships or your friends, you are going to be profoundly disappointed because there's no relationship on earth that can bear the weight that can bear the weight. So I will say it again, the most important relationship you have on earth is your relationship to Jesus Christ. How is that going for you today? More often than not, that's the relationship we invest the least in. That's the relationship we take for granted the most. That's the person we ignore, snub, downright abuse. But it's the most important relationship we have. And every relationship finds its meaning and significance in that relationship. Listen to what Oswald Chambers says. There is only one relationship that matters, and that is your personal relationship to a personal Redeemer and Lord. Let everything else go, but maintain that at all cost. And God will fulfill His purpose through you. This includes meeting the needs of your heart. The man or woman who does not know God demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings, which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing. The human heart must have satisfaction. But there is only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do so many marriages end in divorce? Why is there such conflict and strife and stress in families? Why? Because on some level, we're all looking for satisfaction in those that we love. We're all looking to get something from them that they cannot give. And what we have done is made an idol of those relationships. And those relationships cannot bear the weight of glory. They cannot. And as a result, we become tyrannical, we become cruel, we become demanding, we become disappointed, we become jaded and cynical and disillusioned. And the only thing that we can hope is that that disillusionment reveals to us the error of our ways. Is he our center? Is he our orientation? Is he the most important relationship that we maintain? 
And of course, we couldn't talk about our heart. We could not talk about our core if we did not talk about our emotions. And that's the last letter, E, emotions. And like relationships, we often think of emotions in the context of our heart. We talk about hearts that are broken. We talk about hearts that are mended. We talk about a hard heart, a happy heart, a sad heart. You have those emojis all over the place with the smiley faces or not to kind of communicate in a moment how your heart is feeling. And the reality is that our emotions are part of who we are. And this is one of the things that I think as Christians we must recognize and reconcile with. That we are emotional creatures. And that our emotions are a part of us and not a bad part of us. They're actually a very vital part of us. When the psalmist says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, that's an emotional response to the goodness of God. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. This is not a cold, intellectual, passive, analytical uh, approach to our relationship with, with, with God. There's no relationship that is meaningful that does not have an emotional component. In terms of our parents, in terms of our children, in terms of our spouse, in terms of our friends, there's an emotional component that resonates in our heart in every relationship. And there needs to be that in our relationship with God. Jonathan Edwards said this, There are thousands who hear the word of God, who hear great and exceedingly important truths about uh, themselves and their lives, and yet all they hear has no effect upon them. It makes no change in the way they live. The reason is this. They are not affected by what they hear. I am bold in saying this, but I believe no one is ever changed either by doctrine or by hearing the word or by preaching or teaching of another unless the affections are moved by these things. In other words, unless there's a stirring in our hearts, unless there is something that moves us emotionally, there's something wrong. You know, um, my wife works in a preschool. She's the director of a preschool. And she's been a director there for many, many years. And, And one of the hardest jobs that the director of the preschool has, and this is true of any preschool, is to be sitting down with a parent and reporting to them that there's something wrong. And so often, it's in the affect of a child that is revealed. And see, if this is the first child that the couple has, they don't know what normal is until their kids go to school. They don't really recognize what problems there might be until their child is interacting with other children. And it's in that context where where as a director, my wife has to sit down and say to a parent, your child laughs when they hit children. Or your child laughs when they're being scolded by the teacher. Or your child never smiles. Or your child never speaks. Or your child never laughs. And more often than not, the signal that there's something profoundly wrong with a child is their affect their emotional stability, their emotional well-being. 
And you see, as Christians, I think many of us are stunted emotionally. I think many of us have become so familiar with these truths that familiarity has bred contempt. I fear that in my own life, I'm far more motivated and moved by the things I see on television or on the big screen than I ever am from the pages of the Scripture. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? And you see, I think that just like in a marriage, you can go along for sometimes decades and forget why you married the person in the first place. And often one of the first things a marriage counselor will do when dealing with a marriage that's in crisis will ask the couple to write, why did you marry this person in the first place? Or to list 10 qualities of the person you admire. Why? Because they want them to remember. They want them to go back. They want them to recapture their first love. And so it is with our relationship with Christ. You know who doesn't have to really be told to love God with all their heart? It's the person who just got saved. Did you ever meet a new Christian like that? They're like, I can't believe Jesus saved me, you know? They're just sort of bouncing around. I'll never forget talking to a young believer. She came up to me and she was like, Ken, I can't believe this. I was reading this in the Bible. Can you believe this? I can't believe this. Look, it's right here. She was like this. She started, let me finally, can you believe this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal. Can you believe that? Can you imagine someone reading those words for the first time? So you don't have to tell a new believer to love God with all their heart. They just are like, they saved me. I can't believe it. There's a sidebar. That's a real good reason why we should be evangelizing. We need that kind of love and enthusiasm in the church. (laughs) We need to be reminded what it's like to fall in love for the first time. We need to remember what it's like to have our sins forgiven and see it through the eyes of someone who's experiencing it for the first time. That wonder, that awe, that sense of like, this is so reckless that he would love me, that he would take me, that he would want me. I can't imagine. We get sophisticated. We are Christians for a long time. We're not so bad anymore. We think of ourselves as pretty decent human beings, not realizing that we're just beggars. We tell other beggars where we found bread. What it means to love God with all your heart. It means to have Christ as the core of your being, to recognize the importance and urgency of this command, to pray that God would fill our hearts with his love and to ask him to teach us how to love him with all our hearts and to meditate on these things. Might we have hearts renewed this morning as we remember his great heart 
for us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to meditate on this passage, to think about this simple phrase, to love you with all our heart. And yet, Lord, the profound nature of it, to know how hard our hearts can be, how divided our hearts can be, how distracted they can be. And so, Lord, we pray that you might draw us to yourself, that that we would bathe in your love, that we would bask in your love, and that that love would be what motivates us to love you, that we would not try to fake it or try to manufacture it on our own, but rather just to allow that love that you have shed abroad in our hearts by your Spirit to transform us, Lord. We do confess, Father, that we don't love you as we should, and we don't love our neighbor as we should. And so we pray that you might forgive us and then enable us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For his glory we pray and in his name, amen.